Novak Djokovic wins the French Open, NBA officiating continues to get worse, and U.S. Open betting odds and predictions. The Valley Sports Talk begins right now. What's good, everybody? Welcome into another edition of the LaValley Sports Talk Podcast, brought to you by the Sunlight Network. As always, I'm your host, Chris LaValley. Hope you all are doing well and staying safe. Let's kick off the pod this week. We're going to talk some Novak Djokovic, who won the French Open. The 34-year-old came back again from the brink to win his 19th Grand Slam title. He was down 6-7-2-6, and then he rallied for 6-3-6-2-6-4 victory. With his 19th Grand Slam title, he's only one shy of the, the record of 20 which is held by both Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer. He is the first man in the open era to win all four Grand Slams at least twice, and he is halfway to the coveted achievement of winning all four Slams in a calendar year, something only Rod Laver has managed to do on the men's side in the open era. Now, if he's able to pull off this feat, first by winning Wimbledon and then the U.S. Open, he'll have 21 Grand Slam titles, which will be a new record, and the conversation will need to begin about whether he's the actual GOAT. Last week on this podcast, I talked about how Federer, in my opinion, can no longer be considered the GOAT or even be in that conversation given how soft he's become of late. And that Nadal, for me, is the greatest tennis player of all time. However, I will certainly have to reevaluate that proclamation if Novak is able to accomplish this feat. I mean, look, if, if Novak can, he doesn't, have to complete the the calendar grand slam this year to be considered the goat i mean he's he's still got plenty of tennis left in him even if he ties them i think that there's a real argument to be made that novak might be the greatest tennis player of all time people could even make that argument now if they wanted to i mean he's he he's dominated as of late he's dominated both federer and rafa so you know, the, it's it's obviously, look, I don't follow tennis as closely as I follow all the other sports that I talk about on this podcast, but Djokovic has always been somebody that, that I've, I've always found as an interesting character in sports. I think he's a little, he's a little overly animated, but I also think he's been completely underrated for a long time. People always have talked about Rafa and Roger for years and years and years, and Djokovic was always like that guy on the side that nobody ever really wanted to discuss for whatever reason. He was like the redheaded stepchild that everybody just kept ignoring and kept ignoring and kept ignoring. And over about the last four to five years, he's really put the pedal to the metal and has kind of dominated tennis. And it's almost like sports writers or pundits or whomever in in the, the, the tennis bubble finally had to take notice of him. So he's kind of like that, that comeback kid that everybody just didn't like I said didn't want to give any pay any attention to and now they they're forced to pay attention to him so we'll see if he's able to complete the calendar grand slam I'm certainly going to root for it and uh you know we'll see what happens moving forward but he's he's certainly going to be in the conversation of 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 the goat debate for for years to come so some news and notes around the NFL Tua Tungavailoa had a rough start in Miami the other day in minicamp he threw five interceptions in day one. Five interceptions day one minicamp. Jeff Darlington tweeted out that uh, Tua looked terrible. He, he looked unprepared. He did not look good whatsoever. And uh, all those people who have been talking about how great the Miami Dolphins are going to be this year, once again, I just remind you who, who, 
the the organization and the team that you're talking about. You're talking about the Dolphins. The Dolphins haven't had a good quarterback since Dan Marino, and I don't think Tua Tungavailoa is going to be that special of a quarterback for them. I understand it's day one of minicamp. There's a long way to go from minicamp to the start of the NFL season, but five interceptions, what the hell have you been doing all offseason? You clearly haven't been studying film, that's for sure, or studying your offensive playbook. Like, what the hell have you been doing? And immediately, of course, all the people out there who are the the Tua bandwagoners and pom-pom waivers are saying, oh, well, really what it is is it's because of how great the Miami defense is going to be and the fact that he was playing against the first-string defense. And it, the defense is just going to be so good. And, and, and this new passing game is much more aggressive than what Tua has been used to. He's just got it. He, he, has, he needs time to develop into this new offensive system. Well, you better hope that's what it is. Because if he's not preparing properly, and again, you had from January, you've had the last, what, five, almost six months to be preparing, to be studying, to doing what you need to do, and you throw five interceptions in day one, I look, I just, I, to me, that's not a good sign. That's not a good sign at all. I don't care how aggressive your offensive playbook is or how new it is to your quarterback. Your quarterback should be comfortable enough day one of minicamp to not be chucking five interceptions. And I don't care how great Miami's defense may be this season. There's still no excuse for your quarterback to throw five interceptions in minicamp. Another story, which I think is, is actually kind of interesting. So Derek Carr was interviewed after, uh, after the, his minicamp, and he talked about how he just has absolutely no desire to ever leave the Raiders and that he would even consider quitting football if he were to be, dra- uh, if he were to be traded. So he said, and I quote, I'd probably quit football if I had to play for somebody else. I am a Raider for my entire life. I'm going to root for one team for the rest of my life. It's the Raiders. So I just feel that so strong in my heart, I don't need a perfect situation to make things right. I'd rather go down with the ship. You know what I'm saying? If I have to. I'm that old school mentality. I'm playing for one team and that's it. Whether we've won enough or not, I literally give every bit of energy and effort that I can to this organization. And when I sign a contract, I completely, in my mind, have to fulfill that. I'm committed to that. I put my name on paper. It's just how I was raised. I'm from Fresno, California, born in Fresno. My dad worked in the car business. My mom helped with substitute teaching and all different kinds of stuff at church. So we didn't have a whole bunch of stuff growing up. So I don't need much. And then went on to say Carr signed a five-year, $125 million extension with the Raiders in June 2017. That briefly made him the highest-paid player in the history of the NFL. Okay. So the whole reason why I'm bringing this up is just, this, I, to me, this shows that Carr is the type of quarterback you want to have on your franchise. Like, look, a lot of people don't like Carr. I've always been a bandwagon Derek Carr fan. Um, I have for years. I liked him pre, what was it, 20, 2016, 2017, when he, when he was an MVP favorite until he got injured, and then Matt Ryan ended up winning the MVP that season. And I know that that's really only been Carr's great, great year. He's kind of dropped down, almost dropped off a cliff since then. Last season, he actually played pretty well wasn't fantastic but he, you know he put himself back in the in the top 10 top 12 to 13 quarterback conversation look Carr's got the mentality and the leadership that you want to see out of your starting quarterback the fact that this dude is not looking for an easy way out has flat out told you I'm not looking to leave and I want to play out my contract is exactly what you want to hear from your starting quarterback 
Now, I'm not saying that the Raiders won't go in another direction once his contract is up. They may. There's been rumors for years about how, really not just rumors, but stories that he and Gruden don't see eye to eye, that Gruden would drop him in a hot second if he could get one of the other star quarterbacks out there. He would trade him instantly. Or even there was, there was talk about the Raiders taking a quarterback in, in this year's draft and the Raiders possibly moving up to get to one of the top quarterbacks in this, year, in this past year's draft. Again, for me, this story is more about just Carr's mentality and how he feels about his organization, the fact that he just wants to be he really only wants to be with this organization his entire career. I mean, if I had said that, I'd probably quit. So maybe at the end of this contract, when the Raiders decide, if the Raiders decide to move on from him, which I, I do think is possible, really possible, maybe he says, okay, well, then I'm done. I'm going to hang it up, call it quits. Maybe he decides to come back and coach. Who knows? But Carr is, the, is kind of the mold that, that you would certainly hope you would get from your starting quarterback, and we don't always see that all that often. And then the one other story that I just want to touch on real quick in regard to Joe Burrow. According to ESPN, Burrow surgically repaired left knee, showed no troubles and signs through the team's 10 offseason practices, including Tuesday's mandatory minicamp. Burrow's optimism for playing in Cincinnati's season opener against the Minnesota Vikings remains intact with the knee still around 85%. He said the goal is for the 2020 top overall draft pick to get back to full strength ahead of training camp. He said, and I quote, the knee still has a little ways to go, but my upper body, my right leg, everything else feels better than ever than it ever has before. When I'm on the field and executing, I'm playing better than I ever have before. So I'll continue the program we were on and get back to 100% before camp, end quote. Again, this is still according to ESPN. Burrow participated in all nine of the team's organized team activities in the mandatory minicamp that ended after the first of three scheduled days. Bengals coach Zach Taylor Canceled the last two days, citing the team's full participation and quality work over the past month. Burrow displayed his progress during Tuesday's workout at Paul Brown Stadium. He worked on rolling out of the pocket and throwing on the move. In seven-on-seven drills, Burrow didn't throw a single incompletion with the season with the session highlighted by a pass down the right land. Um, excuse me, but down the right hash marks to wide receiver Stanley Morgan. So, real quick, two things. Number one, this is great news for. Joe Burrow, and obviously for the Cincinnati Bengals. But number two, he worked on pocket throwing on the move, and in on seven-on-seven drills, Burrow didn't throw a single incompletion. Yet you've got Tua Tungavailoa, who's not coming off of a season-ending injury, who throws five interceptions in his first day of minicamp. You guys see the difference? See what I'm talking about? I mean, I know I'm bringing it back to the first part of this segment to now, but that's the difference. You have a guy who's working his tail off, not just to be the best quarterback he could possibly be, but also to come back from injury. He's not even throwing an incompletion. And then you've got Tua out there throwing five interceptions in his first day of minicamp. So to me, again, that that brings me back to the difference of you've got one quarterback who's clearly dedicated to his craft, who's coming back better than ever, or trying to come back better than ever. Then you have another guy who... We really don't know what the hell he's doing in the offseason. So, but anyway, um, it's fantastic news, though, to hear that that Burrow looks like he's going to be 100% by the start of the season. That's obviously what we want. Burrow was neck and neck with Herbert last year for Offensive Rookie of the Year. So hopefully he can build upon what he was able to do last year and continue to be the sensation that everyone believed he would be as he was drafted number one overall last season. <laughs> The NBA officiating sucks. 
it's just, it gets worse and worse. I know everybody likes to rail against the NFL, and look, the NFL's got uh, its own issues officiating, but the NBA is the worst officiating crew in all of sports. They suck. They're not consistent. It's completely subjective. They call fouls whenever they feel like calling fouls. They, they only call fouls for certain superstars, not all the superstars. You know, it would be one thing if you did, like, if they just had, like, a blanket, look, if you're a top 10 player in the league, you're going to get the superstar call. That's not how it works. You pretty much get a superstar call if you're LeBron. LeBron gets every call in the book, okay? If you breathe on LeBron, there's going to be a foul called. Same thing with Giannis. Same thing with Kevin Durant. Same thing with Joel Embiid. Same thing now for whatever reason with Trey Young. I don't understand why Trey Young gets half of these foul calls, but they apparently consider him a superstar, which makes little to no sense. But there are certain, so again, there are certain superstars that get calls, and then there are other superstars that just get completely ignored, like Djokovic, who gets screwed. And this is where I want to start. So Djokovic gets gets uh, kicked out of, of game four, which is a elimination game for his Nuggets against the Suns, which the Suns were going to win anyway. His ejection had nothing to do with the, the, the overall outcome of that basketball game. They were going to lose, okay? And, and I'll say that flat out. The, the Suns were clearly the much better team. I was dead wrong about that series. Clearly the much better team, regardless of if, if Jokic got kicked out or not, was not going to change the game. However, the fact, though, that they, that they made that foul a flagrant two and ejected him is a freaking joke. It's a, it's a complete and utter joke because if that was LeBron, if that was KD, if that was Joel Embiid, if that was uh, Giannis, they would not have kicked them out of the basketball game. Not even close. They wouldn't even thought about it. This is the, 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 the current MVP of your league, but because he's not a superstar enough of a player, he gets screwed on a call. Now, look, yes, he winded up. He came down. He slapped the ball. He also clipped the dude's nose. I get that. Like, I understand that he kind of sort of hit a dude's nose, but it was inadvertent. It wasn't intentional. He immediately apologized. It wasn't like he was, he purposely tried to hurt the other player. He was pissed off and he was going for the ball. He was just angry. His team was losing in an elimination game and he went after the basketball. It, there was no malintent there whatsoever. And it was a bullshit call. And again, this just goes back to, there is no consistency in this, in, with, with the refereeing in the NBA. There is, there's no consistency to the charge call, to a, what's considered a charge, what's considered a block. Actually, what's considered a charge and what's considered a block is akin to what's a catch in the NFL because you never know what you're going to get. You truly don't. It, it depends on, it depends on who's, who's the defender at the time. It depends on who the offensive player is going up. Truly, it does. It depends on, are you a superstar? Are you a superstar trying to collect the charge or you're trying to, to score the basket? Because if you're the superstar trying to make, to make the basket, you're going to get the call in your favor. If you're the superstar and you're trying to collect the charge, you'll probably get the charge called. So it's just, again, it's, it's, just, it's, ter- it's just terrible to watch because you, all of a sudden you're getting these, these people who are getting foul calls in one second, and then the next second the guy down the court gets hacked even worse than the superstar that was just on the free throw line and the refs don't call it. There is no, there literally is no objectivity in, in, in the NBA as far as, as refs go. And then you, you always hear about how certain refs like certain players and don't like other players. And it's like, well, then why are these referee, why are these referees refing a basketball game with a player that they've already flat out admitted to not liking, or it's been leaked 
that this referee does not like this certain player. Because obviously you know that that player is going to get screwed in the game. That, that shouldn't be allowed. And, and I get it. I get not every, not every ref is going to like every player, and not every player is going to like every ref, and, and I understand that that happens, and that's, that's life. But when it's public knowledge that specific referees don't like certain players, and yet they're still refing that basketball game, that's a problem. That shouldn't be allowed. You know, for a, a quote-unquote player-driven league, that's certainly not very player-forward if you're putting out referees that have flat-out said, look, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of this certain player. That's, that's not player-forward at all. Then we come to the player aspect of this. And the NBA players are about as soft as cottonelle tissue at this point in time. I mean, it is pathetic, the fact that you have players like LeBron, James Harden, Trey Young, just to name a few, who flop at, at every opportunity they possibly can, and they get calls. They're worse than soccer players at this point. I have more respect for soccer players. At least in some instances, soccer players, when they collide, they're, they're actually colliding. They're going full speed. They may clip each other. It may not be like full-on collision, but they're still at least clipping each other, and they're rolling around on the ground like they just got shot, and you know it's a little obnoxious, but... At least there was some sort of contact. In the NBA, you've got guys barely touching another player and they throw themselves onto the floor like somebody just ran them over with a bus. And it makes the game unwatchable. I turned off the game the other day. I was watching, I think it was the Bucks, the Bucks Nets game four. I was watching, yeah, it was the Bucks Nets game four on Sunday. And I turned the game off. Midway through, I was like, "This is this is a joke. I can't. You can't watch it. It's ruining the game. It's just it's an awful watch. Like, why would you want to sit there and watch players not only flop every five seconds, but as soon as they don't get the 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 call, oh my god, they just stand there and they're screaming at the ref. Like at a certain point, and again, I'm not pro ref here. Obviously, I was just bashing the refs, but the refs need to start teeing up these players." I don't know what else you can do to get them to stop bitching, but you got to do something because it's unwatchable. I mean, this season alone, you have LeBron who complains every five seconds. Luka Doncic was the worst this season. And I love Luka, but Luka was terrible all season long. And then if you go to the coaches, my God, Doc Rivers has never found a foul that was ever called on his team that he's agreed with. Not one. They show Doc all the time and he... That, that, the fact that that dude is not teed up more often is beyond me. He complains about every freaking foul call that goes against his team. And don't get me wrong, refs aren't always right, and I understand that. But every freaking call, your players make no mistakes. They make no fouls ever. I, it's just, but again, like it, it, this is what the product has become, though. The NBA has become more about flopping and bitching than it has been about the actual game of basketball. And it overshadows some games. I mean, go on, go on NBA Twitter. You can see, even there's, there's a lot of people who are much more NBA fans than I am, who love the product a lot more than I do, who sit there and say flat out, these refs are, the, the refs suck, these players are bitching, this game is unwatchable. But again, that's what the NBA has become. It's it literally, it's just become this, this player-bitching, whiny league with referees that can't call a consistent ball game. So the NBA's got an issue. The other thing real quick, and then I'm going to move on. 
One thing that I thought about as I was watching this next the Nets Bucks game, you should not be allowed to be ever, 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 ever considered to be the greatest player in the world and not be able to hit free throws. There were a couple of years ago where Giannis, peak of his powers, when he was, I think, right after he won his first MVP, there was the debate out there is, is Giannis the, the greatest player in, in basketball? The dude can do everything except hit free throws. And then last year, he was still kind of, hey, look, is Giannis possibly better than LeBron or is he one of the best players in the world? As far as I'm concerned, and this also counts for LeBron because LeBron can't hit his free throws either. If you can hit at least, at least 85% of your free throws, you should not be allowed to be considered the greatest player on the planet. You shouldn't even be the top five conversation. If you cannot hit your freaking free throws, you should not be able to be in the conversation, let alone greatest of all time. You should not be able to be considered top player in the world. How the fuck can you not hit your free throws, especially if you're seven feet tall? Giannis Antetokounmpo should be one of the best free throw shooters in the game just because he's always at the damn free throw line. The same thing with Luka or LeBron James. You guys are always at the free throw line because you're always getting the foul calls because you're, one of, you're considered top five in the league. Just with the amount of reps alone that you get in the game, let alone practice, in the game, you should have a better free throw percentage than you do. Like you just, as far as I'm concerned, when when we when we start debating who's the best, we need to start looking at free throw percentage. Because again, it's a free throw; it's the easiest shot in the game. You should be able, aside from a layup, obviously, but layups contested, free throws not contested. It's just you in the basket. You're an NBA superstar. You're making millions of dollars to be able to play this sport, and you can't hit a freaking free throw. Like it's inexcusable. Giannis should not be in the conversation ever, ever as one of the top five players in the league. You can't hit a free throw. You're not a top player to me. That's great that you can rebound. That's great that you can make that you average 30 points a game. But when I put you on the free throw line at the end of a game, you're going to cost your team. Well, then you're not a top player. A top player hits free throws throughout their game. Near the end of the game, we want the ball in that dude's hands because that dude, even if he misses the shot, he's going to go to the free throw line. We know that we can count on him to make those shots. But people like Giannis, stars like Giannis, are a liability out there. They're a liability because they can't hit their damn free throws. So, yeah, it's great that they can, they can get that defensive rebound or that, even that offensive rebound that you may need at the end of a game. But as soon as they get hacked, they're going to free throw line, and you have to sit back and you have to go, well, shit, is he going to make it? What if he doesn't make it? Then what do we do? What's our game plan? We're down by one. We're down by one point. We're down by a basket. And he's going to the free throw line. Well, it, very likely he's, he's maybe only going to hit one, maybe none. Then what do we do? What's our game plan? Whereas you have other players out there who are, who are not considered top players in the, or top five players in the league, and maybe they should be, that, can, that are, you know, Chris Paul's a 93% free throw shooter. Gallinari is 93.1. Dame Lillard, 92.9. Kemba Walker, 90.1. Trey Young is 88.8. Kevin Durant, 88.7. Bradley Beal, 88.6. You get where I'm going with this? Kawhi Leonard, 88.4. DeMar DeRozan, 88%. Jason Tatum, 87.8. These are all players that you know at the end of the game, they get fouled, they're going to free throw line, they're probably going to make both free throws. Very, very likely they're going to make both free throws. 
yes, I, I did mention Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant's obviously a top five player. But the point that I'm making is you should not be able to be considered a top player in basketball if you cannot hit your free throws. Giannis Antetokounmpo cannot hit a freaking free throw. He is no longer, as far as I'm concerned, a top five player in the league. You cannot be in that conversation if you can't hit free throws. It's one of my biggest arguments against LeBron James when it comes to the GOAT conversation. LeBron James can't hit free throws. You cannot be considered the greatest basketball player of all time if you cannot consistently hit free throws. That makes no sense. It is a massive part of the game of basketball to be able to go to the free throw line at any point in the ball game and knock down shots, especially at the end of a ball game. You should be able to hit a free throw. Game in balance, you go up for a shot, you get fouled. There should be everyone in the arena should, whether you're pro that team or against that team, should either have a great feeling or a sinking feeling because you're going to the free throw line. But it should not be a sinking feeling for the rooting interested party. You should not be sitting there because if you're a Bucks fan, let's be real, you're a Bucks fan, game in balance, and Giannis goes to the, goes to the free throw line, you got to be sweating. You got to be sitting there going, shit, is he actually, is he going to hit these shots or are we screwed here? That should not be the case. Not if you're considered a top five player in basketball. That is, that's inexcusable. U.S. Open Tory Pines is this week. I'm going to give my, my prediction of who I think is going to win. I'm also going to give betting odds and who I would, who I would definitely take a gamble on, which no is not hedging my bets. I'm not hedging my bets. I'm giving you who I think is going to win, and then I'm also going to tell you who, if I could bet in Connecticut, who I would take. Um, but first, the big story leading up to this weekend was Kepka, DeChambeau. Were they going to get paired up? So reportedly, PGA reached out to DeChambeau and his rep and was like, hey, you cool if we pair you up with Kepka? Because DeChambeau is the reigning US, U.S. Open champion. So I guess they were giving him the courtesy of reaching out and being like, look, look, we know we know the whole media thing that's going around. Would you guys be cool if we just pair you up with Kepka anyway, mainly because this will be ratings gold. We really want this to happen. And DeChambeau reportedly declined to have that happen. And once that story hit the airwaves, immediately DeChambeau's reps came out and said, hey, that's not true. We were never approached. Kepka says that he was never approached, but I don't even think Kepka would have been approached anyway about this pairing because A, he wouldn't have cared, and B, he's not the reigning U.S. Open champion. The PGA doesn't really have to give him any type of courtesy. I still think it's bullshit that they even gave DeChambeau that type of courtesy. They should have just paired him up anyway. This is a TV show. It is. At the end of the day, all sports has turned into a television pro, uh, television product. This would have been ratings gold. This is the second time in a row now where the PGA has completely screwed up. They screwed up with John Rahm a couple weeks ago. They're screwing up right now with the fact that they did not pair up DeChambeau and Kepka when they had the opportunity to do it. That is television gold. It would have been much-watched TV. By the way, though, the fact I 100% believe that DeChambeau declined this. DeChambeau has become so weak and so soft in this whole Kepka rivalry. He was the one egging it on. I, I still think he egged it on thinking that for whatever reason, fans were going to back him. It's gone completely in the other direction. Everybody's on Kepka's side, and DeChambeau keeps making it worse for himself. And for a guy who also reportedly is kind of a douchebag to all of the help that's out there on the, on the courses, it couldn't be... It, look, I'm all about 
people at this point picking Nadi Shambo because I've been reading up articles on him over this past week as I was preparing for this segment. And there's a lot, there's too much, there's too much smoke not to be fire here where there are a lot of course people throughout the PGA Tour events that have said that DeChambeau is not a nice guy to whether it's it's the grounds crew, whether it's just the people that work at the at the various clubs throughout the um, on the PGA Tour, I should say, that he's just he's just not a good dude. He's very nasty to people who are quote unquote below him. So as far as I'm concerned, you DeChambeau wanted to be the villain. He's making a lot of money being the villain. You better start embracing it, and you really need to, to fix your mentality on, on this because if you don't want to be the villain, then you need to you need to change something up real quick because otherwise you're, he's going to get crushed both in the press and I, I just think as a player in general he's going he's going to buckle he's going to become buckled down with this weight of of being the villain and being a top player on the tour and not being able to live up to those expectations. Okay, so preamble over. So here are your betting odds. I'm going to give you betting odds first, and then I'll tell you who I think is going to win the whole thing. The way that I did the betting odds was I broke it up into three tiers. You've got your favorites, which is tier one. Then you have your middling favorites, which is tier two. And then you have tier three, which are the people that if they do win and you take them, you can make a decent amount of money. So in your favorites tier here, you got Rom at 10 to 1. Johnson, 16 to 1. DeChambeau and Kepka are 18 to 1. McElroy and Spieth are 20 to 1. And Xander Shoffley is also 20 to 1. Justin Thomas and Colin Morikawa rounded out at 22 to 1. I would take Shoffley at 20 to 1. And actually, yeah, that's it. I, I would take Shoffley. I, that's right. I'm gonna, so I'm going to take one person out of each bracket. I would take Shoffley at 20 to 1. In the second bracket, we've got four players at 25 to 1. You've got Patrick Cantley, Victor Holland, Patrick Reed, and Tony Finau. I would take Victor Holland. Again, all four of them are at 25 to 1 odds. I would take Holland. And then in your in your last bracket here, you've got Webb Simpson, Daniel Berger, and Will Zalatoris. They're all 40 to 1. Scotty Scheffler, Paul Casey are both 45 to 1. And then again, Phil Mickelson is at 50 to 1. Out of this bracket, I would take Scotty Scheffler at 45 to 1. I like the way Scheffler's been playing the last few majors. He's been kind of hanging around the top 15, top 20 area. I think this could be an opportunity for him to break out. My pick for the U.S. Open. I'm taking Brooks Kepka. I'm taking Kepka. This whole thing with DeChambeau, I think, has kind of rejuvenated him. He hung around with Phil at the PGA a couple of weeks ago, or last month, I should say. And while he played the worst Sunday I've ever seen him play, I just I think this DeChambeau thing has got him going. And if like Kepka can feed into this, and I, I feel like he's going to. I just I have this feeling that, especially if he can if he can embarrass DeChambeau on the U.S. Open, especially with DeChambeau being the reigning U.S. Open champion, I think he's going to revel in that. So I'm going to take Kepka to win the whole thing. Again, he's at 18 to one odds. I just I don't know. I like Kepka this weekend. I really do. I should have picked him a couple weeks ago, and I didn't. His knee clearly isn't that as bad as I thought it was. Obviously, given the way that he performed at the PGA, a lot of people like John Rahm this week, and I know he played really well a couple weeks ago. Obviously, the whole COVID thing, he got screwed at the Memorial, and I understand that. I just I don't know, man. I, I'm feeling I'm feeling Kepka this week. Now I said this before, and I'll say it again. I have the kiss of death when it comes to picking golf majors I've never been more wrong 
about picking any type of sporting event in my life than it has come to picking golf majors. Usually when I pick somebody, they don't even end up in the top 20. They Sometimes I don't even make the cut. So take what with what I say with a grain of salt, but I do really like Kepka this weekend. And the other three players that I, I brought up, Shoffley, Hovland, and um, Scheffler, I think they'll be in the top 10. Like I like them enough to say, hey, you should put some money down on them. You might get a return. I do like them this weekend. Uh, but again, you know, take what with with what I say with a grain of salt. On the network here, we um, we do we make fun of the fact that I suck at picking golf majors. I always have. Richo gives me a hard time about it all the time on the Richo and Lala podcast, and he's one hundred percent right to do it because I I just I suck at it. But anyway, I really like Kepka this weekend. It's going to be a great weekend. Golf majors are awesome to watch. If you have the opportunity, you should definitely take some time and uh, and check out the U.S. Open. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the podcast. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever it may be. Please leave a rating and a review. It really does help out the pod. And while you're there, please check out all the other podcasts we have for you from the network, including Drinks with Dan, Richo's Rant, Spaceball, and Richo and Lala. That is it. That's all I have for you this week. Be well, stay safe. Talk to you all again soon.